All right, so uh, became a, a plant manager, uh, running one of the businesses on the inside of aircraft engines. Actually, it was a rotating parts group. Uh, we made all of the internal rotating parts. Moved on in then as an in, in to engine assembly. Uh, ran a part of engine assembly for a few years, and then I went into uh, and, and of course in all those times you're looking at uh, process improvement. I mean that's. Hmm had really gotten into my blood. How do we make these things better? How do we do it? And and the focus was never, I think the original thing that Shingozutsu really taught me is you're not ever looking at getting rid of people. The mindset is, how do you do more with the same people you have? It was never how do you do more with less, it's how do you do more with the same grouping of people that you currently have. And because we were growing, that was something that was actually easy to do. Uh, we were in a union environment that made it a little bit more difficult. In fact, it made it quite a bit more <laughs> difficult uh, because it was the people never trusted us. I mean, it was we had not we did not have a good relationship internally uh, with the labor workforce. There were some areas that were more uh, conducive to what we were trying to do than others. As an example, in the actual machining business, uh, the first plant that I ran was much more conducive to embracing um, a process improvement approach. And I hmm. could not tell you why, uh, other than they just were. Engine assembly, not nearly the same. Uh, and then I also, when I moved into a, a global position, my first global role, and was with all the revenue share partners, not only was I working with them on uh, scheduling and planning and things like that, but I also had the responsibility for uh, coordinating all of the accumulation and shipping of hardware to them that was made uh, both in the United States and also by our own plants um, uh, anywhere in the world. And so now I was working also with Lean and how do you do process improvement in that logistics side of the house and in uh, the shipping and working on the shipping docks and the scheduling and things like that. So that development kept uh, you know, getting broader and broader and working with those. What was interesting then is as much pushback as we had had internally uh, in the early days, when I started working with our revenue share partners, how much more, it was exponentially higher. You know, um, hmm. no one, um, you know, none of the partners, SNECMA, Rolls-Royce, Fiat, MTU, any of those groups, I even IHI in Japan, none of them saw how it would apply or what they needed to be doing different. Um, so we had to focus more around the scheduling side and, and some of the non-operational uh, support teams. So it was actually my first exposure of working lean in a transactional environment, uh, working with that group versus the actual operational people because they just didn't see the application and they didn't want to fool with it and they definitely weren't being held accountable for it. Hmm. So that was, a, that was an ex interesting experience. Um, then I went on into the repair side of the house. So uh, as anything happens, uh, we were, as we were growing and our commercial engines were becoming more and more and more popular, we started seeing the aftermarket as uh, our next growth venture and we really set our visions on becoming uh, a great uh, service business mindset. Uh, make sure that we not only had the sale of the engine, but then all of the repair of the engines and to keep that product line going. Mm. And we actually, you know, from my standpoint, it was one of the biggest growth journeys 
uh, of my career because I've been on the new engine side and we, we went from a, a brand new product line with the CFM 56 program of no engines at all to all of a sudden we're doing you know 20 and 25 engines a day uh, to where now you're going into the service side we were doing maybe five or six a week and as I took over the service end of the business for the CFM program uh, over the next three years I saw it going up to uh, you know four and five hundred a year so you know from 50 a year to 500 a year is a huge jump uh, in manpower and everything else. And had we not done it with lean, um, you know, the cost would have exponential. The biggest example I can give there is when we saw the threshold of going from about 150 to 250 engines a year, the first thing that all of the traditionalists wanted to do in that service business was build a brand new plant and uh, two new test cells. All some total, the cost was hundreds of millions of dollars to put all that together versus, and, and the best thing that happened was the company refused that amount of money. And they said, absolutely not. You got to figure a better way to do it. And now their uh, proposals were not positive. They wanted us to farm it out or find partners or other people. We chose to focus on lean and we actually started embracing lean on the inside uh, and over the next two years, we did not build any additional floor space. We did add an additional test cell, but we did not add any more floor space. And we actually absorbed, we doubled the volume of engines in the exact same floor print. And we also only added about 10%, maybe 15% of the workforce because we actually started flowing it. We started stripping inventory down on the inside. Uh, we started managing our whip and we started engaging the people. So again, in a growth environment, lean is much easier to implement than in a uh, declining market. Uh, and it's easier to get the people engaged because they're already working and they're going nuts. Uh, and now when you start bringing some semblance of uh, um, order to what's happening and they are seeing their jobs be making more sense and not going nuts, they start buying in uh, much more quickly. And then, of course, from a business standpoint, as you see the improvements hitting the bottom line, uh, they can only, you know, only improve from there. So that really was my early world with GE and the mm -hmm. introduction of it. Uh, I left there and went to um, a Dover-owned company. Uh, we saw some success there. Um, uh, but in the interim, in my days with aircraft engines, uh, I had been involved a lot with the outside world, working with um, uh, suppliers and also with some of our uh, airline customers like uh, American Airlines and Delta and Southwest and a few others. And I was constantly getting some phone calls from some of those, both suppliers and also American Airlines, and in one case, mm -hmm. asking for some support uh, and who could I recommend. And I just finally decided maybe it's time to uh, start doing that myself and I actually opened a, a lean consulting firm uh, and for the next five years I really focused on the smaller supply base uh, the small suppliers small disadvantaged businesses that we had worked with that I'd worked with the GE and then also with uh, some of the airlines and then as that first round of work went away uh, or was fulfilled then I started doing much more work with uh, uh, other 
uh, companies and got into electrical work. I got into some um, healthcare uh, in the early days of healthcare. Got into supporting um, some education and actually working with the development of edu- uh, you know lean on the educational side of the house. And I just started seeing a, a pretty nice expansion uh, of that world. So that gave me another perspective of what was going on. One day, one of my clients, uh, in this case, it was Goodrich Aerospace, came and said, "Hey, you're, you know, you're we're supporting, you know, you're doing a good job for us, uh, but we're also paying you a lot of money. Uh, we would love for you to quit being a consultant and become our full-time um, uh, director of ops for our, our services business." So a very similar journey uh, to when I had been in AE, uh, Mm. aircraft engines. And so I did that for a couple years. um, And then 911 developed. And when 911 happened, you know, all of a sudden all of the services industry started plummeting because uh, if you're parking airplanes, uh, you're not needing to servicing them. And and that's exactly what started happening. And so for the next uh, few years, the aerospace industry was down. I actually left... um, uh, uh, Goodrich. I went to now a smaller uh, aircraft manufacturer. I went to a company called uh, Williams International, builds small um, compression jet engines. Uh, worked there for a couple of years as a global director of Lean. Uh, had a great run, did some great things, got a lot of involvement going with the people. Similar to what we had seen at uh, GE and the services side, and they were in a rapid growth trajectory. Uh, and we doubled the volume. And actually, we, we almost tripled the volume with the same number of people and the same amount of floor space. And the big thing was there was a private, Williams is a privately held company. And we took a lot of inventory out of the system because of reducing lead times. And we actually reduced the lead time of their engines about 60, 65% over a two and a half year period of time. Wow. And then took all of that inventory out. And if you're a privately held company and all of a sudden you throw several million of dollars uh, of cash to the bottom line, a lot of people get happy. Um, and that's what happened with them, and it was a great run. Uh, but in the meantime, I had when, even from the time I'd had my own consulting company, I was constantly being lured by a company called um, a Simpler Consulting that uh, focuses exclusively on lean. And uh, they were wanting to make some changes and moves, and they were really making a drive into the healthcare world um, and they finally made it alluring to me, and I decided to to go with them. And and I had a a, a great run with them. And and I really the first the whole time I was there was a focus was on healthcare. And that's I started working with a couple of mainline healthcare suppliers that today are seen as uh, industry leaders. Uh, both of them have done some Shingo work and become Shingo Prize winners. So I did a lot of work with ThetaCare. I was in the early days of working with ThetaCare systems up out of Appleton, Appleton, Wisconsin. And then with Denver Health out in Denver, uh, Colorado. And working with those CEOs who were totally committed, it was a great adventure. And um, if you think it's interesting trying to implement lean into a non-automotive business uh, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, it was even much more in the mid 2000s when healthcare and they're saying you're going to tell us how to bring this stuff that Toyota uses to me uh, we we're working on people you know we're we're helping people this is nothing to do with cars 
And the other thing it taught me is for the first time ever, I not only, I didn't know anything about their processes. I didn't know anything about what they were doing. I didn't know anything about what they were trying to do. All I knew was the process. Hmm. And for the first time ever, it forced me to be 100% completely dependent on the process, not on uh, my understanding of the business and how to take the waste that I was aware of out, but how to just flat out focus on the process. And the other thing it really did for me for the first time ever was really start learning what the customer uh, integration was all about. And so we started actually bringing, in both of those uh, healthcare systems, bringing patients directly into uh, the activity that we were doing, bringing them specifically in to to help us understand what they were looking for and to sculpt these processes around the customer. That was a completely different experience. And so the VOC side of the house became very, very real to me and became a big, powerful driver in developing these new systems uh, and new processes and the way we went about it. In the middle of all of that, I get a phone call from um, uh, 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 Pentair. Uh, Pentair had been known a few years earlier, had, had developed a nice lean system for one of their businesses, uh, but they were struggling. They had bought a new company and in the integration, they had uncovered a few pockets of um, misses and they wanted to really become, a, a, bring a systematic approach. Um, so they brought me on uh, at the corporate level as the, the corporate vice president of uh, Global Lean Enterprise. And um, I found right off the bat that uh, when they had sold this one company a couple of years earlier before they bought this second one, that that company is where all the lean knowledge lie. And when they sold it, they not only sold the, the, the core knowledge base of the system, but they even sold all their training processes, their training uh, capability. They sold their forms, all of that stuff was on those computers that they didn't even realize uh, they didn't have copies uh, at a corporate level. And so the whole world shifted in a hurry for them. And when that did change, um, you know, over the next two years, three years, it was my whole focus was, okay, we're going to build a system. We're not going to focus on uh, tools. We're going to come, we're going to take this from ground zero. And that's exactly what we did. We, we built a business and a world around a, a system and uh, using processes to drive the uh, uh, improvement. And we saw some great things happen to the point that, you know, in 2012 and then again in 2013, we won back-to-back -back Shingos. And um, we set a trajectory that really helped us as we bought uh, a brand new company. Um, and when we brought that on, it was the first time it was a, it was a very major acquisition of ours, uh, over, over a $4.5 billion acquisition. And we were actually able to take the systems that we had pulled together over the prior five or six years and apply it. And not only did we hit, but we actually exceeded uh, most of all of our uh, uh, synergistic as well as our performance targets uh, for the, you know, the uh, acquisition. So that's my history. It's uh, maybe a little bit longer than what you're looking for, but that's my career that 
that brought me to where we are present day and really the, the morphing and the migration of my lean journey. You know, and there's some, some really interesting um, insights there, um, especially the, the diversity of the, the organizations that you've worked with. Um, and yeah, when I speak with the healthcare guys as well, they, they, they're, all, um, they're all really, really interesting to, um, to deal with, especially when we talk about the, the buying and the, the process of the customer facing as well. Um, I mean, specifically um, more to, to you personally, what is your morning ritual? I mean, um, how do you spend the first few hours of the working day, Mark? You know, because I, I have a global responsibility, one of the very first things I do every single day is um, I make contacts with my people globally because they've been working or I, you know, I do my follow-up. We have a standard, uh, one of the first things I did for standard work for all of my group globally was we have a day um, sheet or uh, that they fill out, you know, anything that with key takeaways for the day. And then we have an A3 that every single one of my team completes every week. Uh, for their week's activity, it's focusing on their either their projects that they're working on, or the sites, or the businesses, or the processes that they're focusing on, uh, and they they submit all of those things on Friday that we can review them. And then uh, we have daily activity reports of any key takeaways. We try to summarize it down to less than two paragraphs, so that the first thing I do in the morning is I, I want to know globally what are the pressure points, what's happening, what do we need to be doing with those pressure points. Uh, is it relevant to the system uh, or is it a people issue or what? A second thing is, is I'm looking at talent. Um, hmm. You know, as much as we drive a system and as much as we drive all of these processes, if you don't have solid, committed, focused talent um, in the different areas and the different uh, positions, none of it's going to happen. The talent drives it. And so uh, I'm con I spend... I'd say 30 to 40% of my time every week is focused on talent. And it's uh, coaching, it's working with the teams, it's helping make sure that we're headed down the right path or what is the right path even. Hmm. Um, how do these things tie together? Of course, we have tons and tons of metrics that we're always looking at, but my focus becomes far more around is the talent focused on the right things? How are we tying the talent into that and then developing it? and then uh, when I'm talking talent, I'm also thinking in terms of the plant leadership talent as well as the um, uh, the next layer down. So for even at, at my level, I'm looking at, you know, and until we actually just had a major spinoff of one of our companies a few months ago, but up until just two months ago, I mean, I had over 110 plants, manufacturing plants globally, and another 50 or 70 distribution centers. And I have a, a chart that I look at, uh, you know, all the time on all of the plant managers, the lean managers, the materials managers, the value stream managers, and the quality managers. That's what we call the top five positions of every plant. Where are the openings? What are we doing about those openings? How are we making sure those people are qualified when they mm. step into those roles? And then how are we developing the talent inside of that group to move into those five positions so that then they can produce? So that's, I spend a lot of my time uh, looking at that, coaching and, and, and focusing and working on that. The next level of time is then reviewing uh, the progress. Uh, you know, we definitely have some, we, we when you have 110 plants, there's no way you can deploy resources globally to all of those. There's just no way. It's too expensive. Mm -hmm. So what we end up doing is what we have 
we, we determined um, very, very early on. In fact, when I first went to Pentair, our grand total number, uh, we had 45 plants globally. We were $3.5 billion. And the total count of total lean talent in the company was 23 people. Well, there's no way with 23 people you're going to move the needle on 45 plants and $3.5 billion yeah. uh, across all that. So we immediately started... Uh, I came up with the concept that we're going to have a focus site approach. So just like you have the, uh, a focus cell or a pilot cell when you're trying to demonstrate improvement or develop improvement inside of a business and get the journey started, uh, we said we're going to have uh, this focus site concept. And the focus site concept, we're going to take, um, you know, it's not me that's going to determine this, it's the business leaders. But the business leaders need to say, Where's their pressure points? What is it they want to focus on? And then we said, okay, we're going to look at a limited number of plants that we're going to deploy resources to. And that limited number of plants, we want the plant to be big enough that it can become a training plant. It has to be a plant that has uh, at least half of the that, that top five talent has to be really committed to lean, seeking lean, and wanting to drive and lead from a lean standpoint. Hmm. And then it also has to be geographically um, uh, accessible so that we can fly other people in and out of there for training and to help support transformation. I mean, those, those are the three biggest criteria. Now, whether it's a, performing, a good performing or a poor performing plant, I don't really care as much if those other three things are met. Yeah. And then the last thing we said is, and it has to be big enough that when an improvement is really made that it will impact the bottom line enough that everybody will say, oh shoot, what just happened down there? We want more of that. Uh, so if we had a plant yeah. that's only doing 10 or 11 million a year, we're probably not gonna send a lot of resources there because it's not gonna impact the bottom line big enough. But we will absolutely send people from that $10 million plant to some of these bigger plants to learn, to train, and then take it back and be able to start doing that stuff on their own. Mm. So that's really been our focus over the last, uh, you know, 11 and a half, 12 years that I've been Pentair. And we've seen that focus site list be as small as six, and we've seen it as big as 20. I can tell you that when it was as big as 20, we lost, we lost focus uh, because we were just trying, we were just going too many places at the same time. And it seems to be somewhere around that 10 to 12 number that has become the most palatable for us and the most impactful hmm. and this year we actually have 11 sites that we're focusing on um, and we're making some progress uh, the only negative thing is right now some of our businesses are actually down and then that's a whole together different conversation so the other thing I focus on then daily you know is the talent and then the second thing is how are those focus sites doing right now and which ones what's going on uh, in those and than working with those. And then the third big thing is, how do we drive lean and encourage lean outside of the four walls? You know, how do we get it really working in engineering? How do we, and what's our opportunities inside of sales and marketing? What's yeah. our opportunities uh, in the transactional world? So those are really my three big focuses every day. Talent, the performance of the focus sites, and then the non-ops uh, ex uh, expansion. 
Brilliant, and and yeah, just moving on to um, some of the, you know, the the core content now. Obviously, you very extensive background in lean. Um, how are you currently seeing um, you know, your organisation, other organisations, leveraging technology to their advantage um, in in the context of the uh, the lean sphere? I think technology. We we have struggled with that somewhat. I think uh, it's developing. It's getting. We're sure. we're getting some experience. But we've actually, uh, you know, we've we've struggled with that. I think one of the reasons we have struggled is so many companies will throw money at the resolution, and all of a sudden you've got a whole new different problem. Now you are over leveraged. You have more capital. You've got to get faster returns, and it may or may not have helped you. And I can actually say we unfortunately even have an example recently. Uh, of one of our businesses that, that threw several million dollars at a technology application uh, and it's failing miserably. Um, we're struggling, we can't get the returns uh, and it's not integrating well. I think the biggest thing that we have seen is you know the old adage of right-sized equipment for right-sized problems is you know really the way to look at it. Not Don't mm. overkill a solution. I also fully believe this. I believe that until you demonstrate something manually, mechanizing is only going to make all your problems uh, uh, show up faster. It's not going to help you pro improve the process. But once you understand what's going on, and, and now you can start seeing what's not working, now you can apply it appropriately. And we have a couple of plants that have done a great job of putting robots in the places of uh, where people are really, really a lot of labor-intensive repetition that is just in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. Well, robots do that extremely well. Or uh, we're doing very, very consistent welds in a specific process. Or you're doing a very consistent paint pattern. That That's places mm -hmm. where that technology, and we've actually done a really, really nice job with some of that. Um, I think one of the places that we have just begun to to start working is on uh, data collection and uh, a mechanical or electronic methodology of collecting data more rapidly and then being able to analyze it and give us responses. And I'll be very candid with that. Uh, we've seen more, um, we've seen a lot of presentations and we've seen very little payback out of those presentations so far. And so mm -hmm. that's something that we know that we have a big need for but we truthfully haven't seen a lot of uh, solid answers yet. We've seen a lot of people tell us how great their answers are, but we haven't seen a lot of those great answers yet uh, and, and as a whole system. Now, we've seen bits and pieces, and, it's, and, and we're using some of the bits and pieces, but we haven't seen this full, totally integrated system that a lot of people preach in a methodology yet that's really given us the payback that we need or we want uh, or that's really going to be applicable uh, for the amount of money that it costs to implement. Yeah, for sure, and it always does tie back into um, to, to the people side first, and then the the technology more as a complement. But as you said, that that stuff that's going to be developing over the next few years really exciting time for the manufacturing exactly. space. Exactly. Um, we'll move on to a quick fire round now. So. Um, Basically, I'll ask you some questions. You'll have um, no more than 30 seconds to answer them. So um, best of luck. Um, so oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so w within your specific background, 
what's the biggest takeaway in terms of um, what effect did cultural buy-in have on the organizations that you've worked with? Cultural buy-in is everything. If you don't have the cultural buy-in, it's absolutely going to be a nightmare. If people don't agree with what you're getting ready to do, they're absolutely going to fight you on every turn. But if they believe in what you're doing, uh, and if the culture is one of engagement, and then doing something with it, just asking people for feedback and then going on isn't isn't mm-hmm. is never going to buy anything. If the system is built around implementation of ideas, that's when you're going to get faster employee engagement. Uh, it has to be around the implementation, not around an idea, but around the implementation of it. I think a second thing is it's got to be a culture of um, support and a culture of um, linkage. So to me, those are the two big things. Brilliant. And what's the best piece of advice that you you ever received? Uh, I don't have every answer. And I what I might think is slow could be incredibly fast to other people. And what I think is fast could be a a snail's pace to others. Mm. I constantly have to be looking and thinking and asking questions of other people and listening to what they're saying. Don't think I've got the answers. And also don't think that everybody is automatically with me uh, when I start a journey. That makes sense. Yeah, perfect. Um, is there an alarm going off in the in the back? There? Well, actually, I set this stupid thing to tell me thirty <laughs> seconds, and for whatever reason, now it uh, it is. <laughs> so yeah, there's a there's a problem. Sure, yeah, don't worry about that too much. I'm just sort of um, yeah, it's, it doesn't have to be Got an it. exact science. <laughs> Got it. Perfect. Um, the most influential book you, you've ever read and why? I'll tell you, the book The Reckoning by David Halberstam was one of the most comprehensive things I ever read, and it's a it's a journey book. It's Paris comparing uh, Ford Motor Company to uh, uh, Nissan, actually, because Toyota didn't want to participate. But from the 1900s until uh, the mid-70s or early 80s. And it just was an incredibly journey to me because it was dealing with the culture, the mentality, the thought process. Mm. It was dealing with uh, companies that, that were responding out of... Um, Necessity, and then others responding just because of an altruistic, and it was just a great comparison of all that went. And it came out around the same time, or I read it around the same time that I read the book, the the world, the machine that changed the world. And to me, those things together just became phenomenal, phenomenal mm. um, books. Brilliant. And in terms of um, the the online resources that you use to. Uh, increase productivity, stay in tune with current events. What what are the is the is the best one that you find? Uh, online resources, as in training, or just uh, period for uh, you know Evernote, LinkedIn, that kind of stuff. Oh, I, I use LinkedIn all the time, and I have found LinkedIn to just be a very very powerful tool, mm. uh, both for contacts, uh, also for recruiting a talent, uh, for bouncing things off off of other people. I think uh, treating some of the uh, you know as a, almost as an ongoing blog is a is a big deal. I, I I use LinkedIn for a lot of different things, and and I've appreciated that part of a uh, uh, LinkedIn. Brilliant. What's the the one thing about manufacturing that you're you're most excited about um, today? I think. Um, the fact that technology, when you think of 3D printing specifically, 
and what can be done so rapidly. I, I can tell you, I remember vividly in the late 1990s when we started using that initial technology uh, to do the laying up of some models, and now it's into even uh, 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 a production mode. I mean, some parts are coming out of that type of thing that now are being used in product. To me, that's a great uh, example of the way technology evolves and actually can be used in uh, a, a new methodology. I also believe um, making equipment more and more user-friendly uh, and not having to worry about the uh, uh, how to make it all work specifically as opposed to, no, I, don't, I can now give it some codes and commands and it'll automatically start doing or it even can mimic. To me, those are some pretty exciting things and let the person become more creative as opposed to stuck to an old tried and true mindset, but actually be uh, creative in the way they're trying to make some of the things happen. To me, that's exciting in the manufacturing world. Brilliant. What's the, the biggest um, the biggest mistake that you, you've ever made, Mark? Thinking people are already in the same mindset that I am. <laughs> Just because somebody's head is going up and down it doesn't mean that they're agreeing. Uh, you know, I've really learned mm. to understand that that just means, okay, they hear me talking, but I'm not getting any response on do they really agree, support, or follow. Um, I, I have been out ahead of the crowd before, and then you turn around and there's no crowd there anymore. You're out in the field by yourself. That's not a good experience. Mm. Um, the other thing is, um, just because you know, just because I know in my mind that something has to be done in a hurry, it doesn't mean anybody else believes it. And so you got to make your case, you got to present the case, uh, and then see if they're going to respond or not. And I think in the past, you know, a couple of times, I've, I'm I'm a high energy guy, I move fast, I, I try to get things done fast, I like to react fast, and I have assumed that that's always been perceived as positive, and it is not. Uh, you know, over the years I've learned that just because I think it's a priority doesn't mean it's a priority to anybody else. And I need to read what's happening uh, with the other people. And to me, that's been the big challenge. I think the other big one is to think that I could be whatever I was as an individual contributor and highly successful, that that's exactly the same things I had to do to be highly successful as a leader. And there, there's no, that's not the same thing. It's a completely different picture. And uh, the first couple years as a plant manager, uh, I think I was successful not because um, I was doing the right things, but because I, I was building relationships with people and they were doing it because they liked me. Mm. It was not because I was doing the right things. And they gave me a lot of grace. Uh, and so to me, that, that the biggest thing that I've learned is just don't expect that everybody is automatically in agreement because they're not. Awesome. And last one, um, what is your favorite quote and how do you put that into practice? Jeez. Um, <laughs> favorite quote. Um, I think the biggest, Deming's comment about uh, in God we trust, all others bring data. I mean, to <laughs> me, that's a big deal. And I think that even helps like with myself to see if people are really with me or not. You know, I it's not just the charisma, but you got to have the real reality of why you're doing something. So, you know, hey, I trust you, I love you, but show me really what we're getting ready to do here before I just jump out on a limb. 
Brilliant. I um, I really like that one. Um, yeah, just uh, as a, a sort of um, a wrap up, what advice would you give to to new and aspiring lean leaders, people who who want to to get into this space and uh, continuously improve that kind of stuff? Always err on the side of making a mistake versus trying to study it to death. Mm. People that wait forever to implement fail, and the people that will try it and then correctly. I mean, rapidly correct an error will always make progress. I mean, that to me is the number one thing to do. And when you walk into some place, uh, whether it's healthcare or whether it's uh, a grocery store or it's in uh, a manufacturing facility, if they're still studying the data, trying to decide what to do, it means they're going to fail and somebody else is going to pass them up. You got to be able to look at something and then try it. Uh, and if it's wrong, correct it and go from there. You know, now you know. In some things, like if you're doing open heart surgery, yeah, you you better know exactly what you're doing related to the actual surgery. But I'm talking about the support activity around it. You know, try it uh, and then correct it and have it a system. I think one of the things that was interesting to me was I, I was listening to some guys at Toyota and they said, uh, forget all the other stuff people talk about. We have got a system of root cause countermeasure. Because we would rather fix something and then see an issue and then we can correct it than never do anything and never have a problem. Hmm. Yeah, so a really good example. Um, yeah, I think that's really about it. Um, any questions um, that I should have asked you? Que thoughts, comments, anything Anything on that line? I, you know, the only thing I would say is, um, you know, one of, the, one of those questions to me that always has caught me off guard is, so if you had it to do all over again, would you do anything different? And I think uh, I would have taken more chances earlier versus um, uh, and gone even faster, but I would have also listened to what the people were saying more tightly. I would have had mm -hmm. a, a closer response and a closer um, feedback network uh, than I've ever had in my life. To me, that becomes the bigger success. Mark, thanks for joining us. Um, Mark Gooch, VP of Lean Enterprise for Pentair, will be judging the Manufacturing Leaders Award Ceremony taking place in Boston in November. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us, Mark. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.